I'm Sheila Daz, and welcome to Flow, where we discuss the power and the problems of conversation. First, I'd like to welcome and thank a whole new bunch of listeners who have joined us from South America, especially in large numbers from Brazil. I would love to hear from you down there and from our listeners everywhere. So please send along your comments and suggestions to anchor.fm backslash Sheila hyphen das backslash message. And that address is also on our description page. People have been asking me how I come up with ideas and guests for this podcast. The answer is simple. Whether in person or in writing, I just take note whenever someone is dealing with some aspect of communication that's revealing about how we understand each other. I came across today's guest, University of Toronto Professor of History, Nicholas Terpstra, quite by accident years ago when I ran into a friend of mine in the university cafeteria. I wanted to learn transcription of old hands, think italic or gothic. And she told me that Professor Terpstra was looking for a research assistant to do that very work. So off I marched to his office to suggest my utterly inadequate skills. And to my amazement, he gave me a stab at the documents. Before I knew it, not only had I been sucked into the charm of old hands, but also into the puzzle of manuscript research. Now, normally, when I think about reading ancient sources, I recall, like lots of people who studied Machiavelli, his famous letter to Vettori, in which he describes, in exile from Florence, how after having drunk wine with the local farmers, millers, and butchers, he would return home and ready himself for a conversation now with his dearest friends. He writes, At the door, I take off the day's clothing, covered with mud and dust, and put on garments regal and courtly. And reclothed appropriately, I enter the ancient courts of ancient men, where received by them with affection, where I am not ashamed to speak with them and to ask them the reason for their actions. And they, in their kindness, answer me. And so the idea of reading history as an active and even affectionate exchange between writer and reader was lodged in my brain. With Nick today, we'll go even further than that as he shares how manuscripts present the historian with particular questions, misdirections, and sometimes evasions. Which documents are reliable? Which may have been lost? How does the condition of these documents reveal other secrets? Nick, who has spent his career giving voice to the voiceless in history, the overlooked, the vulnerable, the marginalized, takes us on a journey which becomes an ongoing back and forth between scribes, caretakers, and officials of Renaissance Florence, with himself, his research assistants, like me, and fellow historians today.
Nick. It's great to have you on Flow. Hi, Sheila. Thanks a lot for inviting me. Um, yeah, I really did want to invite you, actually, because um, I think it's interesting, of course, what you do. I've been caught up a bit myself in some of your uh, projects. And when I think about conversation, one of the things that I've thought about is the reader actually as a kind of interlocutor. Right. And that's what I'd like to explore uh, with you today, but not just the reader, a particular kind of reader, a reader like you, <laughs> a historian who's looking at um, manuscripts and how you engage with uh, manuscripts. And I think that's interesting on a lot of levels, but also because it's something that few people do um, directly. And they may not be aware, um, many people just may not be aware of all of the layers um, that's involved in trying to understand and make meaning of manuscripts. So I thought how we could kind of proceed is to look at that method by focusing on maybe one project of yours in particular, <laughs> and that's the project of uh, the research you did on the um, orphanage of the girls of the Pietà which was uh, situated in Florence from about 1554 uh, to the 1700s. And then later, I'd like to kind of draw on your work with manuscripts and how you're bringing that forward to the general person in uh, a digital project that you um, had worked on called Hidden Cities, uh, also looking at Florence. But okay, so before we get to that cool modern stuff, I'd like to go back to the cool older stuff <laughs> and the reading of manuscripts the old fashioned way um, with eyes on the vellum. And think of that as a kind of medium, like we might think of texting as a written medium for conversation. So how would you, if we could just start off with that, how would you describe reading manuscripts how may it, it might act as a conversation? So that's a really cool question because when you're, when you're looking at manuscripts, you're looking at manuscripts, uh, like say about, and let's take this particular project of, uh, of uh, the House of the Pieta. You're, you're looking at a range of different manuscripts that are written at different times by different people. So you're having different conversations with different people as you're reading them, right? And Sometimes what happens is that then as you're reading something and what happened in this particular case, something starts to ring false. And so it's like in a conversation too, when you're having a conversation with other people, sometimes you know, things don't line up. And so you're, what you're hearing from one group or one person doesn't really line up with what you're hearing from others. And so you might, through questions, try to dig deeper and find out, okay, what, what's actually going on here? How do I, how do I square this circle? And in, in this particular case, that was very much what was going on because there was a, was a kind of a history about this, this home, which had been, you know, prepared on the basis of a few manuscript histories, including some really ones that looked, you know, overtly very reliable, like a, like a history of the place that was written by one of the, one of the girls who was there, uh, which, you know, I mean, how would that not be reliable, right? And and yet what, what happened is when uh, we were doing work on, uh, on the, you know, just, you know, looking at some of the entrance records for this home, what struck us is that there were realities about this place and particularly an extraordinary death rate in the home that 
that that later history never really talked about, and in fact, never mentioned at all. And so what, what struck me is that, is that there were things that were being, uh, that were that, about which there was silence. And I'm wondering then, is it a deliberate silence? Is it just that they don't know? Or is it that they're actually trying to cover something up? And that's when you get into the question of, okay, what, what does this manuscript tell me? What does that manuscript tell me? How do the manuscripts relate to each other? Do they comment on each other? Do the authors start to talk about each other? Uh, and so it's over a period, of, with this one, it was over a period of, of, of years that it started to, I guess on one hand, kind of unravel, right? Because there was, there was the initial picture, which I thought was fairly straightforward. And then the more, the more the questions arose, the more other questions came up and the more other silences developed until I had a whole series of things around which there was just, you know, a, a, a ton of question marks. And so that meant you had to go in really far and, uh, and, you know, really deep and try to work out, okay, what, you know, how do I, how do I line these up? And in the end, you know, I have to say, I, I have some hypotheses, I have some suggestions, but, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I've got an answer uh, because somebody else could take a look at the same stuff and say, well, you know, I don't think so. It's, it's not this, it's that. So uh, what I, what I take from what you're saying is that like your investigation, which we're going to explore, I hope um, a little bit more in detail, <laughs> but what, what you've already done is that you've asked a lot of questions and you're hearing these gaps or there are documents that maybe are missing or documents that are suspect or maybe not entirely, let's say, truthful. Right. <laughs> and and so you're going to continue to look. And so you have more and more questions. And so you're already developing a lot. I think the the or laying the ground for your approach, your methodology in, in asking certain questions and maybe also looking for certain documents. And I think that is definitely one side of being um, a good listener in a conversation, trying to listen for um, what's not there or is not being said uh, to get to the, the real story. But I would also add that you, Nick, and like all of us, um, you bring also your own person into that research and your own questions, your own concerns. And one of the things I've noticed that uh, has kind of uh, struck me very strongly of late is looking over your career, the, the kind of subjects you've decided to, to look at. So, of course, there's the orphanage project. But beyond that, you looked at <laughs> um, women in the Renaissance. You looked at the sex trade. Um, you've looked at homosexual life. You've looked at prisoners, prisoners condemned to death, um, and religious refugees like Muslims and Jews, among uh, other, other subjects. And what I see that all of these have in common is that they're all somehow on the fringes of Renaissance um, uh, Italian society. So could you also elaborate uh, about you as a listener, as someone who's choosing um, to have certain conversations, how you were drawn to those areas? Sure. Um, I think part of it is, say, a, a political orientation. Uh, and, and part of it is also a, a response or a reaction, maybe, to 
to the way the time period of the Renaissance has often been approached. Uh, so often, you know, a lot of people they are drawn to the Renaissance because it's about it's about high culture, and high culture is often about you know great artists or or great patrons. So we we study people like the Medici, we study people like Michelangelo, Da Vinci, and and it's easy to get wrapped up in this very uh, seductive world of the courts of of of, uh, of high culture. And, and on the basis of that, people have often looked at this period and said, well, you know, this is when the modern world begins. This is when they want the modern world to begin because they want the modern world to kind of match their dreams about what society and civilization and art will be. And I, I think that what, what I was drawn to is more, uh, you know, the, the, the other side of society. So who else, is, who else is part of those societies and who is not being talked about and who is it? that's making those societies possible, often whose sacrifices are making those societies possible. So, so I was just more drawn, not so much to social leaders, but to the people on the underside uh, to see, you know, because I was a social historian, I wanted to see what made society work. And, and uh, you're always working with these people that are on the, unders others, on the underside of society and the ones who are often thrown out by society. And so because those are people who are kind of thrown out or uh, left out of society. Um, and we're talking about the Renaissance. So um, at least a, a large number of those would be um, illiterate as well. Um, how do you then as a historian engage with um, their lives? Which, which documents might you look for that would reveal something about people who um, are, let's say, often forgotten? Right. There's there's different ways you can do it. One way that a lot of people do it is they go to court records and they look at court records because court records are often uh, they have uh, what are uh, transcriptions of court proceedings, which often involve discussions. People are talking about things, they're talking about their lives, they're talking about the trouble they've gotten into. Uh, another thing that people look at often is letters and uh, uh, letters that people exchange, merchants exchange uh, in particular. Uh, the kind of things that I ended up looking at were uh, often institutional structures uh, like orphanages um, and uh, brotherhoods, religious brotherhoods that cared for the poor and cared for, again, people on the underside. And so it's it's not that I don't think those other things are valuable. I mean, I, I, I do very much, but uh, I just found this kind of uh, red thread that I followed. And I was looking particularly then at these kinds of institutions because I thought, they're, they're actually a very interesting uh, angle at how society organizes itself. And so I found myself drawn into looking at, particularly, like you say, at, at orphanages, poor houses, because you do sometimes get stories in the records of the actual people. I mean, one thing that was, that was really very touching about one of these orphanages in Florence is that uh, uh, people who wanted to enroll children in them would have to uh, would have to provide a narrative, and so I was reading through dozens and eventually hundreds of these stories of why a child had to be allowed into a into a, a shelter because there was no because the family had fallen apart or possibly you know one parent had died and the other one was not able to care for them or in some cases it was descriptions of kids who were just abandoned by their parents and so neighbors were taking them in. And so you had all of these incredible stories of kids who were who were abandoned, kids who, again, like you say, they they were they couldn't write for themselves. Others had to write for them. Uh, and then one, if with one of them, 
it was amazing because at the back, on the back of that very entrance kind of nomination form, there was a portrait. And it was a portrait of a young boy. Uh, and this is the young boy that was being described in the document on the other side. Mm. So, you know, with all of these, you you look at them and you think, you know, uh, you, you still have to have a kind of a skeptical eye. These are people that are putting in a, a, an entrance application, right? So they're going to they're going to accentuate the problems. They're going to accentuate the anxieties, the difficulties. But at the same point, there's still elements of the story that can't be denied. Yeah. And and that, those are the things that were uh, that were amazing. I mean, another thing is kind of related to that is that, again, sometimes documents don't speak. I was trying to find a, with that same home. I was trying to find out how many people were in the home. And one of the ways that you could find that was that when kids came in, they often had no shoes. And so mm-hmm. they had they oddly enough, they had no record of how many kids that came in, but they did keep a record of how many shoes they provided. So I was using shoes as a way to get at the numbers of kids who were coming in. And in this one home, that was within one year, that was like well over 600 kids. Wow. And I could, the only way I could get at them, and it's a rough count, was by the number of shoes that the home provided. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's amazing, right? <laughs> and it seems like, so circuitous as well, like so unexpected. <laughs> right, right, it, it is. And, you know. But but it? you have like, you have the registration um, forms as well. But you're right. saying not all the homes had that? Like they didn't all have like clear registration forms with like names and dates of entrance? Right. Well, what, okay. what was typically the case is that there would be there would be much tighter records, much, much more detailed records for girls than for boys. Often mm. for boys, they had very, very few records at all. So when I was going for the shoes, mm. that was in a home for boys. And uh, okay, it, and the home otherwise had like it had that's where that home also had these these nomination forms. But. It wouldn't, it, it only had those for a period of about, a, a, you know, say 10, 12 years. Mm-hmm. And then, then they stopped. So it's, it can be very episodic. So you bring up actually a lot of questions, which reminds me of another book uh, that you wrote. The, the book you wrote on primary sources. Um, and I think um, that was called Lives Uncovered. Right. Um, and uh, you were talking there about how do, should people engage with primary sources like like manuscripts? And you mentioned a bunch of questions like who was writing, who were they writing for, why was it written at the time? And you've already started to touch on some of those questions uh, in your own investigations. And you've also mentioned already uh, this idea of looking for um, what's not said. And as you've said, uh, also like you know, what are the gaps, uh, what what documents may have just never been written or potentially also destroyed or lost, as can often happen. And you've called that like reading into the silences. So it's like you're looking at what's there and then you're looking at what's not there. And um, what do you think uh, that gives you in particular, let's say, looking into the silences when you're approaching marginalized populations? The people keeping these documents didn't keep them for your benefit, mm-hmm. right? So you come to the documents with questions that they weren't even asking. And, and you sometimes wish that they would have kept more records of things that, that, that you want. Uh, the other thing is that sometimes, sometimes the records they did keep were simply lost. I mean, in the 18th century, when they started archiving some of these things, a lot of records that they thought just weren't necessary anymore uh, were thrown out or they were recycled. I mean, there's actually a huge 
demand for paper. So some of the paper that's produced, say, in the 16th century gets recycled in the 18th because they don't have the space to store it anymore. So, so what you're you're always realizing that you've got like, you know, talk about a talk about a looking for a needle in a haystack. You've got various haystacks with different kinds of hay. And uh, you're always looking kind of, you're following, you're, you're looking for a particular needle, right? You want to find out what was it like for a kid to live in that time period? What was it like for a kid to be brought to a home and then, and then, you know, live in that home and then leave the home and go on to life elsewhere. So, so the most you might be able to get is these stray traces because you're working with administrative records. So you might be able to find out the kind of stuff they ate, or you might be able to find out from another record, the kind of stuff they had to do, like the work they did, because all of these orphanages are really work homes, they're workhouses. So you're looking at how much work they did. Uh, and then you might find stray, you know, stray, stray letters, uh, complaints about conditions that are on in there, or, or a controversy that goes on in a, in a home. Because the other thing is that these were kids that have been abandoned by many other people. They are, they are just sitting targets for ongoing exploitation by others, even sometimes by the people running the homes, or sometimes especially by the people running the homes, mm -hmm. right? So, so you want to look out for, you, you want to read documents to see what's, what's, what's between the lines. If they're talking at one point in one of the Bolognese homes, they're very, they're, they're very self-congratulatory about the fact that they've been able to provide a single bed for every boy that's in the home. And you realize that one of the one of the things they're not talking about is sexual activity between boys in these in these beds and in these homes. So so, you know, some of that is then, you know, the things you draw together from other sources and some of it, again, kind of like kind of like the shoes that you count. Uh, you know, you've got to you've got to make particularly when you're working with administrative records, if you're trying to make them speak about daily life, it's often you know all sorts of indirect kind of things. And you're trying to recreate then, you know, periods when there's famine, periods when there's abundance, periods when there's uh, when there's abuse, um, and then the, the 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 lives that they try to make for some of these kids. I'm hearing, uh, you know, that again, your your perspective here ringing through, and your questions ringing through. You know what your interests are, and then you're coming up against sometimes in the in the documents, not direct answers to those questions, and so you're left uh, putting some. Um, together. So as, as we're looking at that, then we've sort of identified already that there's the content in the manuscripts, then there's maybe the absence of manuscripts. But there's also the physicality of the manuscript um, itself. And would you be able to just describe for us, like some of the manuscripts you've seen and how their physicality um, may have told you something um, about what you were investigating? Sure, sure. Because that's often, that's one of the reasons why it's so important to get there and see them and actually be able to feel them and, 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 and handle them and see what happens with them. There's, there's two things I can think of in particular. And one, one has to do with, a, um, with the, uh, the group that I was looking at that was comforting prisoners about to be, uh, that were condemned to die. And these were, these were comforters then who would be uh, trying to find out how to how to help a person, actually they 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 wouldn't try to uh, appeal the sentence. They what they what they were trying to do was uh, get this person to think about their eternal eternal destination. So their immediate destination was going to be say a scaffold, 
but then uh, in the in the thought processes and the in the convictions of the time, even a even a person who'd been a murderer could go to heaven if they followed the example of the good thief who was who was uh, crucified with Christ and uh, acknowledged their own sin, uh, uh, gave themselves over entirely to Christ, and uh, and and um, you know confessed Christ. So this these groups that were called comforters would work with prisoners from the night before the execution and into the next day, right to usually executions are in the morning. So right from the night period into the next day, they would work step by step with these people uh, who are about to be uh, condemned or who are condemned and about to be executed, many of whom were actually possibly innocent. And so one of the things that I was looking at was a, was a manual for how to do this. And the literature on how to help these people evolves over time. And some of the early literature, 15, 14th century literature was often kind of abstract and, and, and pastoral. And then as you get into the 15th century, it gets based more on personal experience. And then into the 16th century, you get stories. They often tell stories and they have, they have songs and, 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 and almost like Romeo and Juliet type stories. So there's, there's an evolution of these, of these forms. And one, one manuscript I worked at was a 15th century manuscript and it had the kind of the first two kinds that I talked about. So the the, the first kind of abstract, you know, pastoral theological literature, and then uh, and then practical help by people who clearly had been uh, uh, comforters. And what I saw in this one manuscript, a beautiful manuscript that now exists in the Morgan Library in um, in New York, and it, it had originally been a, a, a you know very beautiful manuscript prepared in Bologna in the 15th century, and it had these two together. And the, those two together, and what you saw when you when you work with vellum over time, it gets softer. If you don't work with it, it, it stays stiff. It's almost like plastic. Hmm. And so the first half of this manuscript, which was the abstract uh, rules, was more like plastic. It hadn't been handled. It hadn't been worked with. The second half that was the more immediate practical experience had clearly been handled quite a bit, had been read again and again and again and used. And you could see the first half was clean and stiff. The second half was dirty and soft. And it only gets dirty and soft if it's used. And so this is a, I mean, this is the, the best example I could see of how those two halves of the manuscript really reflected two, two experiences of being a comforter and the preferences or the, the reality that you had to work with the kind of immediate experience that you had. Mm -hmm. uh, so that that's one thing. And another thing was uh, typically with, again, looking back at the orphanage, uh, it's an orphanage. One of the key things about it uh, the one that I was looking at, the Pieta, was that it was it was uh, it was established and run by women, and there were a few of those. And this is unusual in the case of, of Florence because it was run entirely by women. In fact, there was there were no men involved in it at all, uh, and that's for about the first say uh, 14, 15 years. Then after a while, some men get involved, and then after a while, the men will take over. And and I'd seen this in a couple of confraternities as well in in Bologna. And what typically happens when the men take over, they they will write some statutes and they'll explain, well, you know, these poor women just didn't know what they were doing. And so they needed they needed the help of some senior merchants. And, and uh, you know, it was a very patronizing tone, very sexist, very misogynist, very patronizing. And um, and I'd seen it a lot. And, and what what struck me in the case of this particular home was that when you looked at the physicality of the manuscripts, what you saw was a completely different story. That as long as the women ran the home, the home, it wasn't just that the home had a particular approach to, to girls, but that, that is one thing. But 
they had established a set of very, uh, very good manuscript volumes, which they maintained very well. They kept their records very well, and they, they, they considered their records to be very important. So what they had written, that what they had commissioned, were some beautiful manuscript volumes. Uh, and this is what they; these were what they maintained in the in the course of the fifteen years that they ran the place. After it was taken over, record keeping almost completely collapses, and you find that records are being kept on stray pieces of paper here and there. That that manuscripts are being reused for different things, and that uh, above all, they don't even have volumes anymore. But they're just kind of they just have loose papers that are gathered together into sheaves or bundles with no chronological order or anything, and they're just kind of put together into piles, uh, uh, kind of tied together and put on a shelf. So, you know, the, the, the women had actually, the physicality of their manuscripts showed how important they took, how importantly they took the, 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 the administration and the girls that they were in care of. And the sheer chaos that happens after the men take over, uh, the, the, the physicality of that chaos is evident. Mm -hmm. And that was, I think, th those that that was just one thing that that became clear to you. As again, you've got to get into the manuscripts, you've got to get into the archives, you've got to see these volumes, and see the kind of contrast there, and then and then start to piece together. Okay, what's actually happening? Let's continue then with with uh, the Pieta with with the orphanage. I think about uh, my involvement, uh, which was uh, transcribing some of the letter, letters of admission, um, even uh, learning how to transcribe on the job, which was fun. But uh, your interest, of course, came before that. And when you were when you were looking at the manuscripts themselves and what you found um, while you were looking at these these ledgers of admission, um, could you explain um, what it is you found that that made you want to uh, focus more on this particular orphanage? Well, you know, I'll actually flip that around and say it's actually what you found. Okay. That made me think that there was a bigger story here because what I was reading beforehand were just these later chronicles, for instance, a chronicle that started in the, about the I think about the 1590s. The, that home begins in 1554. The men are starting, it, it moves in 1568. The men are starting to kind of take a bigger role in 1570. By the 1590s, that's when a chronicle is being written by, by one of the girls. And so, and it's picked up later on by later people in the home. That chronicle kind of matched typical stories about the home that I'd heard about from other things. And it's a chronicle like it has uh, stories about some particular individual girls that were in the home and their their uh, their experience and all the rest. So so I I was just taking that at face value, um, and uh, the the chronicle talked a bit about the fact that the home had been started by women, but didn't make a big deal out of that. Uh, but then what 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 you were finding when you were doing the transcriptions of the entry records was what was coming out then as we were as we were then you know crunching the numbers. This is when the kind of the overwhelming fact that came out was how many of these girls are dying and how many of the girls are dying very soon after they enter. Like we're talking about sometimes, sometimes months after they enter the home, sometimes weeks, sometimes days. And, and the overall death rate in that home was uh, like it was uh, for the early stage uh, of its, of its existence. It was like, it was like up around 60% or higher. It was just it was phenomenal. And it, it struck me as odd that 
the later chronicle would have mentioned nothing about this because this is a death rate that you would have expected from foundling homes where it's infants and there's you know there's a high infant mortality rate but you really wouldn't expect it of other homes uh, for taking in uh, girls at this point it was girls who were say you know possibly the low end would be age eight or nine but a lot of it would be say girls around uh, very early adolescence you know so 12 11 12 13 and um by that point you know other other homes in in Florence and in Bologna where the two cities I was looking at they might have had a death rate of about 15 percent uh and most of those girls then died much later on they, they would have died only after years in the home this is why this is why I realized that there was a story here that that there was a mystery, like what's killing the girls in the Pietà, right? And I didn't know what was killing the girls in the Pietà. And one of the one of the red flags for me was, well, why was that never something that was raised by the later historians of the Pietà, not by the not by the girls who were writing the history in the 1590s, and not by later historians at all. So, so it was really a question mark. And then it was the effort to try to find what I thought should be something that was fairly easy to track down. The more I was trying to track it down, the more I was realizing that other records were missing or other records were silent on it. At, at one point, it was very hard to even find out whether the, whether the home existed in the place it was supposed to exist. So the more I came across records that were incomplete, the more I realized that the silence around the place was growing and that there had to be something that was now not just being ignored, but I, I think was being suppressed. So that became like a question then that you um, continued to ask in a lot of uh, different ways. And you've already mentioned today um, the idea of the records of, say, purchases for, for work. And I think you were saying also that these orphanages, these institutions were really like work factories. Yeah. Um, and so like, what did you find? Um, what 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 kind of work? Uh, did you learn uh, was being done in these institutions? So a lot of the work was textile work and uh, the Florentine, you know, the Renaissance Florentine economy had built, been built on wool work. And so some of the work they were doing was, was early stages of the wool, uh, wool process, wool producing process. Uh, but then the wool was already kind of in decline in the 16th century and the, and the, the new industry that's coming up is silk. And what was happening was that uh, while they were doing some wool work, they were doing much more silk work. And uh, they're doing the early stages of the silk process, which is really uh, uh, unraveling or unreeling the silk cocoons and then twisting that and winding it into thread. Um, and that's a process which is actually, um, can be uh, very, uh, very unhealthy because the cocoons would be soaked in, in hot water so you you actually got uh, a, a, a lot of girls who uh, who are involved in this, and it tended to be work that was done by by girls, children, orphans, and a number of them end up getting respiratory diseases because it's done in in hot, humid conditions, uh, often uh, with with great pressure for production, and uh, and so in in various places there were there were there was death because of things like uh, like again um, uh, to almost like tubercular conditions. Uh, I think so, I also read yeah, that you'd written out at some point that it required a lot of um, focus of the eyes. And so there was right. also a lot of um, problems with eyesight. Yeah, straining on eyes. Uh, so, so really, it's much more physically involving than, say, the, silk, the, than, than the wool work that these girls would have done. So at one point I found, 
in the inventory, I found a record that that was supposed to be a book that showed how much had been produced, how much wool, uh, how much silk, and how much wool was being produced by the girls over the period that I was precisely interested in. So I called that that volume up because I really wanted to see what it was because that seemed to me to be the one that would be like the again the smoking gun or the red thread. And when I looked at it, I realized that it actually had nothing like that at all. There was there was actually nothing about about the uh, production uh, in it. So whether it had been you know improperly inventoried or whatever, I don't really know. But it had three different kinds of documents in it three different kinds of records in it. The first section was from the 1550s, and that was like the, the people who were joining the home as sponsors or patrons or members. And then that was in the beginning. And then at the back, there were, there were, uh, there were records of, uh, of food purchases from about the 1570s and 80s. Uh, but then the interesting thing was that kind of tucked into the middle uh, with, no, with no indication on the spine or anything else were, were a set of about 15 different medical recipes. Uh, so, so care for the home. And I thought, okay, this might actually help me find out what's going on. Mm -hmm. I couldn't at that point find these recipes in any other texts, medical texts at the time. So I started trying to unravel the recipes themselves and look at what were the, what were the, the items that were used in the recipes. And this is when I found out that, uh, that about, uh, I think it's about a, uh, about a third of the, of the items that were used in the recipes were things which according to contemporary pharmacological guides could be used as abortifacients. Okay. And that was what made me start to think, okay, well, you know, what's, go I mean, this, what's going on here? What's going on here? <laughs> yeah, like what would girls in an orphanage uh, be needing with abortifacients? Right, exactly. And, and so- So how did you follow up that question? Well, then I started looking more about uh, how many girls are in the homes. And again, if, if girls are coming in at their early teen years, uh, are they coming in uh, pregnant or are they, being, uh, are they being assaulted? I mean, the other thing that happened with some of these girls is that they would, the ones who didn't work in the homes would sometimes be sent out as servants mm -hmm. to the homes of others. And then they often return, sometimes within just a few weeks. So they make a contract to be away for five years, but they might return within a few weeks or months. So. So we know that girls uh, in service had a very high rate, uh, were very vulnerable to assault, and girls who had no family were, uh, were subject to assault. And so what you had here was since the intersection of both of those problems, girls from orphanages with, with, with no family to protect them. So I thought that might be part of it, but even then, even if they were using abortifacients, so even if there was if if, if there was uh, a, a problem with with unwanted pregnancies, uh, the thing that struck me as, as strange about it is that they they the abortifacients that were used at that time were not necessarily uh, lethal. Mm -hmm. So so it 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 didn't make a lot of sense, and so uh, I, I I talked about this problem with uh, with somebody who was a visiting scholar. She was actually a person who had medical training before before she decided to leave medicine and go into history. But she would, you know, we talked about this, and I said this problem I've got, and without missing a beat, she said, "Oh, but that would be syphilis." And that really became something that was much more, to my mind, much more plausible, because we're talking about the 1550s. We're talking about a time before. Italians really, or Europeans generally, were aware of the phenomena of tertiary syphilis, or what we might call inherited syphilis, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and so it's it's a, it's an early stage. You're looking at 
at the, the kinds of things that, that might have affected these girls. So, and, uh, and then that became an issue that I started to look at. Then I looked at the medical recipes again and saw that many of them actually, if you looked at them differently, many of them actually would deal with the symptoms of syphilis, not the causes. They, so they weren't addressing the causes as would have been thought of at the time, but it was more the, the symptoms. So, so uh, skin rashes, uh, aches in joints, eye problems. Mm -hmm. And the fact then that very likely the people who were caring for them what they knew was that they were that these girls were sick. They didn't yet have, um, they didn't yet have the, the the medical knowledge to understand to put to square that circle. But also the fact that a lot of the girls who died died within a relatively short period after they entered um, right. the Pieta, and and their ages like would be from I'm I'm talking averages uh, maybe from like about eight to 14 ish right right so they're not infants they're not they're right. they're not say just being born uh with syphilis so would it take um would it be uh that this disease took that long to develop into its fatal stage yeah yeah it uh, well that's at least uh, one of the things that then becomes a challenge is you have to look at diagnoses of syphilis pre-penicillin Right. So you have to look at older medical literature. And so what I was trying to do was look at precisely medical literature from the 19th century, but then also looking at, at medical literature from the 1550s, 60s and 70s. So it 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 becomes a it becomes a, a you know a matter of piecing together. And again, it's all hypothesis. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and and somebody who would take another look at it might see things differently because we even when we find the record of what made what what brought the what 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 killed these girls we don't there's there's nothing in the death records that shows what it actually is it just says that they died so you're 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 piecing together a hypothetical case that's that is really hypothesis upon hypothesis but you know looking at as much as you can of the context and the other records in the context and the and the context in the city as well you were talking also about silences in in that idea of um, people maybe wanting to suppress certain stories. And I know you also uh, situated uh, where the um, Pieta originally was established. And then uh, when it later moved in, in 1568 to um, further and more, more north uh, part of the yeah. city, I believe. Um, yeah. So originally it was on um, Borgo Agnisanti. Could you describe why that might be important at all to your your research in your sure. your investigations a absolutely because so borgo nisanti is in the in the, the the western part of the the city it's in an area that had been a textile district from the 12th century onwards that street is just one street up from the river now it's of course it's very high end at that time it was uh kind of at the area where the phi was located was right at the intersection you could say of an industrial slum and a red light district so you had uh, Ogni Santi was was uh, was a street that had some some high end places, but really mainly uh, textile workers houses. And then it was on a corner with another street that was occupied almost entirely by prostitutes. And so you're you're really at the intersection, like I say, of an industrial slum in a red light district. And so it was uh, it was a place where where uh, certainly uh, poor women, uh, women who had been subject to assault, 
and, and women who would have this knowledge would gather. And one of the things again about that, that about the, 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 the medical recipes that I mentioned is that they were in about three or four different hands. And when I talked to people who, who knew more about Florentine handwriting than I do, they said, it was very interesting because they said it was the kind of handwriting that you would expect from people who were educated but not practiced in writing. Hmm. And that pointed in, in, in the case of one woman in particular, she said it point, to her, it pointed to a female writer hmm. uh, or female writers. And, uh, and again, so, so the fact that these recipes are tucked in there, they're for a variety of things. It seemed to me it was, a, again, a kind of a, a hidden knowledge. The other thing that, that, that struck me is that this was knowledge then that was so, it was in a book that started off as a book right, uh, registering the female supporters of the home. Then it seems to go to possibly one of those female supporters keeping these, these records. But then in the 1570s, it's clearly passed on. It's taken away from these women because it goes into the hands of the person who is recording the day-to-day -day purchase of food. And that's what he does at the end. And that's part of that collapse of record keeping that I talked about at the end, where they no longer had uh, you know, designated books for, for this, that, and the other thing, but they were just kind of taking whatever scraps of paper they could find here. But it seemed to me that if you looked at who would have been using that book, it moves away from the, uh, the, 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 the medical, uh, because the home had, had kind of nurses, had, had female medical staff, or, or, or like say nursing staff, and it goes into the hands of a male who's keeping, who's keeping financial records. So that also seemed to me part of the history of that particular volume that, looked, that talked about then a change in the house. And what had happened in the meantime like I say, the home then moves away from that district that I've talked about, which is the kind of the industrial slum slash red light district. And it goes about as far as you can go in the city and still remain within the city walls. So way up to the north, an area that was practically unpopulated. It's the area of the walls that have been built just before the Black Death. And then when the, when the collapse of population occurs in the Black Death, that area kind of goes into farming. So if you can imagine Florence in the you know, 14th, 15th into the 16th century had farms within the city walls because it was because the city walls had been built for a population of about 120, 150,000. And by that point, you know, after this Black Death, it's down to about 30 or 40,000. So, so they go up to this remote area and, and the entire, that's where the entire economics of the home collapses because they no longer can count on the donations from people in the immediate neighborhood. And that's when it gradually shifts also. And I think this is part of a deliberate strategy. When the men take over, they have a different idea of what it's going to be. The women who had run the home, who had established the home and who'd run it, clearly wanted to help girls who were in great difficulty and possibly immediate difficulty and immediate threat of death. And that's why they were taking in all of these girls who, you know, I think in many cases were mortally ill already when they came in. The men, when the men take it over and kind of reorganize it, they're not going to take in girls like that. They, they, they adopt a very different procedure for getting into the home. Girls now have to have references, they have to have sponsors. And so they, so they only take in a better off girls 
Uh, but what ends up happening is they tend to take in the illegitimate daughters of Florentine, uh, the Florentine elite. And so it moves from being this kind of home that's taking in the very neediest of society. And it moves from, from that towards becoming a home that really takes in the unwanted offspring of philandering Florentine patricians. Uh, so the death rate goes way down. Mm -hmm. And they turn it then gradually uh, into a convent. They force these girls to take uh, religious orders. And so those are the girls who start writing the, the chronicle. Mm -hmm. And the way they write their chronicle is that, you know, it, it may have started, the Pieta may have started out as this, this home for, 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 uh, for abandoned children, but really what God wanted all along was that it should become a home for nuns. Aren't we happy? That's what it's actually become. So that's why they write a different narrative. They don't even, they're not even concerned about the kind of girls who were in that home before, nor are they really concerned with getting that history right, because for them, that's all prolegomena. That's like, mm -hmm. that's like what it was. That's not what it, what it is for them. And that's not what it should be because they think it should really be a convent. I read how you referred to that particular chronicle um, as um, an alternate history. Yeah. And um, you had written that quite a few years ago, actually, I think in yeah. 2010. And yeah. it almost seemed to me to kind of um, foresee the use of uh, Kellyanne Conway's alternate facts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> In oh, yeah. that, in both cases, like I hope that's not too much of a stretch, but in both cases, you have an official narrative that people want to kind of stamp on an event, and they will be purposefully oblivious uh, and and just not look at what were the realities around that event. Right, right, and and the other thing they do uh, is they invent. Is they is they so there's they they change events and they they invent other ones. So. What this chronicle then does is it, uh, and it was very important for convents to have uh, to kind of a, have a history of uh, of pious nuns that they could point to and hope that some of them would become saints and add to the add to the reputation of the convent. So so this this chronicle uh, talks about a number of the older women who had come into the home early on, and uh, it talks about their saintly lives. And so it talks, it's talking about women who joined the home, say, in the 1850s or 60s. And it's writing about this now in the, you know, we're talking about the 1610s. And I looked back and because I did have, because thanks to the women who had established the home, they had very good entrance records. And there were about, I think about 10 or a dozen uh, nuns who were talked about in the 1610s as being very pious. I couldn't find records of any of them entering the home even though it was said that they had entered at you know a particular time in the 1550s or 60s so so they're they're inventing out of whole cloth mm -hmm. these you know pious nuns who maybe never existed and meanwhile they're completely obliterating they're erasing uh the ones who were there the girls who were there so, yeah, so we really do need when we're, we're looking at history and some of these manuscripts to be on guard, I guess, against the official narratives and look at some of the documents, some that you've mentioned here, like ledgers or, or medical recipes or purchase orders or like, you know, I guess, moving documents or, or things that seem, 
you know, at first glance, maybe banal, like what did this, what did this orphanage um, buy on a, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis? Like who cares, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but actually that's where a lot of the, the secrets can emerge. Exactly. Exactly. Where you least expect it. And in a sense, where people don't bother to cover their traces, right? Oh, that's interesting. And that's why that's why some of those records are really important because they have no sense that this is actually going to be used against them. Yeah. Or 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 the people later on have no sense that this is something they should, you know, if they're actually trying to do a cover-up, that they should be eliminating those records as well. The interesting thing is that even later on when paper was being recycled, the, the records they tended to keep were the financial records because they thought, okay, that's something we'll probably need. And so that's what sometimes that's all we have. So it's it it takes a bit of time to use those financial records to recover the daily life of, of, of the people in the home. But, you know, it's amazing. Uh, there was a, a student who just finished her PhD with me and she was looking at things like candles and different kinds of candles as a way to recover a sense of the sensory life of, of Florence's main orphanage at that time, the, the Hospital of the Innocenti because you had wax candles, which were very expensive, uh, beeswax, let's say, and could, could smell nice and, and give a good light. And then the other kind were tallow candles, which were made with animal fat in which had a very bad light, stank like nobody's business, and were, uh, were very unpleasant. So she was looking at, you know, using these records to trace how many wax candles do they have? How many tallow candles do they have? Who's using what candles where? Yeah. So where the where the you know it's it, the girls at that point in the textile area are having to use tallow candles. Mm-hmm. It's the I understood that from the beginning the of this story. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Whereas you know the male administrators get wax candles. Yeah. Uh, you know what a surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sometimes you it, it's a matter of confirming what we've thought rather than you know finding something entirely new, mm-hmm. but. It does also, I think in that case, what she was doing, she wanted to get a sense of what the sensory experience of girls was. So she was looking things at things like the, the finish of fabrics, the smell in the home, the kind of food they would taste. Uh, and she was actually finding an awful lot, again, out of some of these administrative records. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's so evocative what you're saying. Oh yeah, yeah, it's amazing, it's just amazing. Yeah, I, I, I love that, um, that idea. And you now kind of presented us with a nice segue into, I think, bringing some of these documents alive uh, for people today and bringing the lives of different kinds of people um, in historical periods closer so that we can understand them today. And so if we could finish maybe by looking at uh, the Decima project, and this app that you have contributed to, which I really do find totally amazing. Um, so could you outline a little bit what was your contribution? So, uh, so the, the app that you're talking about uh, is uh, from uh, Hidden Cities or Hidden Florence. And it's, uh, it's an effort to try to, try to create um, uh, historical walking tours that take you that you can take through modern day Florence, but what they will do is they will prompt you to find out the history of particular places that, you know, except from the, from the past. So um, you can go, uh, there's, a, there's one tour that uh, follows a wool worker. Uh, there's another tour that follows say Cosimo de' Medici, the first Cosimo de' Medici in the 15th century. 
and we came up with uh, with a couple of tours. One for a, for a girl that's from one of the orphanages, uh, one from a from police officer, uh, one from a, uh, a a patrician woman who's walking through parts of Florence, and so the Florence that she sees as well. And and this came in part, and the the Dechma project in 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 part came out of uh, actually out of the out of the Lost Girls project and the effort uh, to. Uh, it, it, it went down, remember I said that as, at one point it was hard to even tell where the orphanage existed mm -hmm. and if it existed. And uh, fortunately in 1561, uh, a new tax had been established and that was a, a, a decima tax, a tenth, the one tenth on property values. And uh, so there was a very thorough tax census made of the entire city in 1561, household to household to household. And I used that in order to track down where the orphanage existed and find out that in 1561, there were 161 girls in it. And I always thought we should do something more with that. So, uh, so I got some funds to create, uh, uh, to, to, to take all of that data from the tax census and put it into a database and then geo-reference that to a 1584 map of the city, an aerial view of the city to give some people a sense of what the city is actually like, who lives where, what they're doing. It was on the basis of that, that I also then was able to come in contact with some other people, including the people who were involved in, in the Hidden Florence project. Uh, it's really established by uh, Fabrizio Nevola, who's a, an art historian in the, in the UK, working with uh, David Rosenthal, another, another uh, 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 a historian, a social historian. And uh, David and I had actually known each other for years. So uh, we, we collaborated, we decided to collaborate and they wanted to have uh, additional, um, additional uh, stories, tours for their, for their app, for their historical app. And so we provided them. And the idea was that when, you've, when you take this historical tour, you're taking it in the company of a person from that time period. So that's why I say, for instance, like a, uh, a girl who, uh, or a young woman, sorry, who had been uh, abandoned at the at the foundling home of the Innocenti. She's now in her late twenties, early thirties. She's uh, she's a, herself a widow. She's married. She has a child. She's widowed, and so she's uh, she's going through the city. And we use her experience to take you through the city and take you through what is a woman's experience of of, of Renaissance Florence. What are the places that she would go to that would be open to her? that uh, that she would have to go to and uh and similarly with the with the police officer uh we were trying to get in that case uh a police officer who is both you know to some extent uh not an entirely sympathetic character because police at that time were often former criminals they were thugs and uh so what we've got there is a is a case of a person who's uh you know in a sense as much an agent of violence as a preventer of violence. Mm -hmm. And so what's his experience of the city and where does he take you? And so we use that to go over the, um, the route of the people in Florence who were taken for execution. And, and they're all based on either actual historical characters or, or composite characters based on what we find in the, in the records. And uh, the way the tour works then is that you can, you can just take the tour and and have this person give you an account of, of the various places they're going to, then you can you can you can uh, kind of uh, link further to a uh, to a historian who tells you more about that place, and then you can link further to some historical records and bibliography. The people behind it, uh, Fabrizio Nevola, 
has now started something on historical city or hidden cities. So he's he's got a group that looks at other other European cities, uh, Valencia, Hamburg, Exeter, Trench, places like that. When I hear that, and I hear uh, how much work is being done, and how much interest there is actually um, that people have in the past, and experiencing this. Um, this conversation with somebody from the past actually leading them through the city and you've made that alive um, with your colleagues i think often these days of uh, william faulkner's quote the past is never dead uh it's not even past <laughs> <laughs> and is is that something that resonates with you and maybe in particular this latest project of yours oh yeah yeah i think i'd like to, to finish with this idea then nick because you mentioned before your colleague who helped ask the question about syphilis for the girls of the Pieta. Right. And now you're talking about such collaboration um, with people um, from different um, uh, academic backgrounds and, and different abilities to help you know, grow these projects. And I see that as sort of an ongoing conversation that we need to have with each other today in order to uncover the past and, and share it with with the wider population no I, absolutely because the thing is too you particularly to get into digital uh, digital methods you can't do it no no single individual can do it by themselves right and part of the problem with the humanities is we're used to dealing very individually right it's it's it was very hard for me to even start thinking about having research assistants mm -hmm. and so one of the great things is when we were working together and and, and you were doing that that was that was one of the first times I'd done that, but it opened oh, really? up so much about how how to find out about the past, right? Mm. So it's 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 not the way we're trained. Mm. It's not what kind of comes naturally. But if you do it, you find your experience is that it opens up all sorts of things you would have never been able to find by yourself. Uh, so, and we've got actually a, a project uh, or kind of a collaboration of about five or six different digital projects just in Florence itself. And we've got a uh, kind of a loosely organized group that's based around the, um, the Harvard Center for Italian Renaissance Studies, Villa Itati. Uh, and that, that's called uh, Florencia Illustrata. And there's, uh, there's uh, an art historian, Neil Atkinson from University of Chicago. There's another art historian, uh, uh, Ann Leader from University of Virginia. Uh, there's us, so, so myself and Colin Rose, who's at Brock University. George Bent, another historian from the States. Uh, and we all do different kinds of things, but one thing we started doing uh, is try to find collaborative projects we can work on together. And we, one of the first ones we did is actually on the Innocenti Foundling Home. Well, Nick Terpstra, um, <laughs> thank you so much <laughs> for spending some time with me and leading us through what's really an exciting world of manuscripts and the life of a historian today. So thank you. Well, thanks very much, Sheila, for, for this wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Bye then. Flow is edited by Rebecca Akone. Original and music by Glenn Etche and performed by Caitlin May Wong and Jonathan Situni. A special thanks goes out to Bruce Norton. I'm Sheila Daz, your host. Follow us to stay in the flow. <laughs>